Before we begin this podcast, we would like to issue a trigger warning. This podcast includes discussions on caste-based discrimination and other forms of discrimination, as well as mentions of sexual assault. Hey, Bhavya, this friend of mine was telling me the other day about how they've really been struggling recently. And I feel like help from a professional would benefit them so much right now. They agreed with me, but just didn't see how it would work out when even the thought of getting over all these obstacles in the way of accessing therapy adds to their stress. Mm, I wish there was something I could do to help make it seem less daunting. But I guess I can't argue that India is not an easy place to access psychotherapy right now. Yeah, but there's scope for so much growth and there still are a number of options. Why don't we discuss this further, Sanaya? Oh yeah, I'd love to. At its base, psychotherapy involves you, a professional psychotherapist, and the use of psychological methods to help you through your journey with mental health. It's a practice that benefits everyone. Some people need help coping with serious illnesses and others may need help coping with losses, substance usage, or relationship troubles. There may be any number of reasons across your life that therapy could help you through. Check out Rick and Morty's Pickle Rick episode to hear the most convincing speech on why therapy. And while we may not be Rick and Morty, in this Honeycomb Psychology podcast, we'll be discussing what psychotherapy is what it actually looks like, what you might be able to expect from therapy, some of the various approaches to it. More importantly, we want to discuss psychotherapy specific to India right now, what the research, or lack thereof, shows about each of these techniques. While we hope to cover a pretty wide spectrum of issues all circling psychotherapy as a whole, this is such a vast domain that, needless to say, I doubt this is going to be exhaustive at all. Listen on if you've ever felt any interest in therapy, wondered if you should consider it, struggled to convince a loved one to try it, felt frustrated at how inaccessible it can be, or even lost faith in the technique due to a not-so-good experience. We hope that this helps start a conversation, even if it's just in how you, the listener, think about these issues, so we can move towards growing the field in an inclusive direction. So coming to the what of it, no matter how old you are, a psychologist can help you walk through problems and help you live happier, healthier lives. Psychologists uh, apply scientific procedures to help people develop better, effective habits. There are several approaches to psychotherapy, we'll get to this in a bit, but all approaches can be seen as an alliance that are grounded in dialogue, providing an objective, neutral, and a non-judgmental space. That all sounds great, but I'm sure you might wonder when you should consider it. The short answer is that it could be at any time for any number of reasons. If you are constantly on edge, maybe struggling with substance, you feel overwhelmed, helpless, or stressed, and your immediate support system is not making enough of a difference, this is when you can turn to professional help. Now, since it's an alliance, it's important to find the right fit for yourself. So don't shy away from interviewing a psychologist about their approach, expertise, training. If you vibe, go for it. But on a serious note, look for someone who instills comfort and confidence. One step in discovering the right fit is roughly understanding how different approaches in therapy can vary. The first psychologically established form of talk therapy is psychodynamic, started by good old Freud. We've all heard of Freud. He remains present whether it's through explicit conversations on Freudian slips, dream analysis, etc., or through terms like mommy and daddy issues. Freud worked in psychoanalysis and other psychologists such as Carl Jung, Alfred Adler extended his theory, making it known as the psychodynamic approach. Freud discussed what's termed the iceberg model of the human mind, where your conscious thoughts are just the tip 
and everything under the surface is the unconscious. But this is what he focused on. So according to him, humans are strongly influenced by what's called the id, which is your impulses driven by pleasure. Also the superego or the moral branch that represents reality and the ego, which mediates between the id and superego. He also defined ego defense mechanisms. We've all used these terms as lay people once in a while, whether accurately or not. Um, I'm repressing that phase of my life. They are projecting, etc. These are examples of defense mechanisms that we use to cope with anxiety or to protect ourselves. According to the psychodynamic approach, an individual has conflict resolution needs at each stage of their life. And so it focuses on understanding where the conflict lies. For instance, if someone is addicted to alcohol, a psychoanalytic therapist would try and understand their infancy to see if their oral needs were satisfied back then. More holistic stances have also been included wherein one's lifestyle and their present also occupies space. How psychodynamic therapy translates into treatment is likely to involve transference, which entails surfacing of past patterns in other relationships towards the therapist during the session, and countertransference, which is just the opposite. It entails the therapist's own unconscious response to the client. So with the help of the therapist, the client recognizes these unhealthy patterns and works on them. And along with these, the therapist might use techniques such as free association, where the client talks in a free-flowing manner, or dream analysis, where the client and therapist together infer meanings from the client's dreams. But yeah, you may have come across articles such as, is Freud's personality theory still relevant? Because of certain limitations like too much focus on the past, lack of empirical evidence. Moving on to compare the therapeutic approaches, the psychodynamic approach would handle addiction differently, say compared to cognitive behavioral therapy, which is CBT. We'll get to this in a bit. The psychodynamic therapists uh, see it not just as a behavior, but instead view the person as a whole and see what defense mechanisms have led to this. The addiction would be reflecting an underlying unresolved issue that one relieves with substance. A psychodynamic therapist would work compassionately with the client, understanding transference and being mindful of their own countertransference, gradually resolving the issues. So like Bhavya mentioned, CBT, which is another form of therapy, stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. This approach believes that psychological problems are based in part on faulty or unhelpful ways of thinking or cognitions. It has proven its effectiveness for a number of problems, um, depression, anxiety disorders, alcohol and drug use problems, marital problems, eating disorders, and more severe mental illnesses as well. Its core basically lies in efforts to change thinking patterns that we are set in. So the therapist might use some strategies to deconstruct these patterns, like exposure to one's fears or role-playing to understand problematic interactions, Basically, learning to recognize one's distortions in thinking that are creating problems and then re-evaluating them in light of reality. The treatment isn't imposed, uh, but instead developed collaboratively. Through these, the client gains insight and uses skills to cope with difficult situations with a sense of confidence in their abilities. For instance, in India, CBT is widely used to help people with substance use issues. It's been shown uh, to be effective in the treatment of smoking addiction, since the assumption is that thinking patterns influence behavior and they can be modified to bring about positive change, CBT focuses on changing faulty beliefs and behaviors concerning, in this example, smoking. So as you can see, unlike the psychodynamic approach, which draws from one's past, CBT therapists instead zoom into the person's current life. 
Of course, the person's history is needed to some extent, but the primary focus is on moving onwards in effective ways. But turning to the reality of CBT in India, even though it's the most widely practiced approach here, there's a paucity of research, number one, within the Indian context itself, and number two, around adapting CBT in the South Asian context from the Western models that it's developed from. So these Western models fail to consider the local context, creating a need for a culturally competent adaptation. On top of this, be wary of therapists passing non-scientific techniques as CBT, simply promising a quick fix to replace negative feelings without using scientifically verified techniques that actually target the thought patterns. Yeah, and it's always a good idea to confirm a therapist's qualifications no matter what their approach might be. Moving away from CBT, though, the humanistic approach is one that's quite different, with a therapist um, playing a very different role here. Specifically, person-centered therapy is an approach that was started based on a positive view of people and the idea that we have a natural inclination towards improvement. Moving towards becoming a fully functioning person, this was coined by Carl Rogers, the psychologist who proposed the approach. The main aim in person-centered therapy is for the client to experience feelings more wholly and move towards increased awareness, trust in themselves, and inner directedness. Basically, what Rogers theorized was that each of us have our real self, which is who we actually are, and then an ideal self, who is who we believe we should be. So the amount that these two selves overlap, that is essentially how much in harmony we are with the person we want to be, is what he called congruence. So just picture a Venn diagram. If the circles of your real self and ideal self overlap almost entirely, you've probably achieved congruence. But the wider the gap is, the more incongruent you feel. There are a number of other terms and nuances to Roger's theory, but we don't really need to get into those. This is the crux of it. Generally, the client in therapy is someone experiencing incongruence where the circles aren't overlapping, either in a specific situation or as a more general struggle with identity. Yes, and correspondingly, the therapist here is someone who is congruent and the relationship between the client and the therapist is what is most emphasized, a relationship of warmth, genuineness, empathy and respect. The therapist takes on a far less directive role here though, unlike the previous approaches discussed, and the focus is placed more on the power of being heard, what can be done in the here and now, and active listening. This approach tends to be pretty useful for crisis intervention, human relations training, and also with people from different cultural backgrounds. This is so because of the open dialogue, emphasis on respect for a client's values, and non-judgmental listening, you get the idea, essentially. Keep in mind, though, that research showing this multicultural applicability has also been done mostly in Western contexts, as is unfortunately the case with most psych research, like I mentioned with CBT as well. I really struggle to find any good quality studies on person-centered therapy in the Indian context. And it's important to think about the limitations of where it could be applicable. The core values of the approach itself and the idea of who a quote-unquote fully functioning person is, is very focused on the individual. The non-directive approach of the therapist can also be difficult for some people to get behind, as according to some research that we'll get into a bit later, there's a tendency for Indians to implicitly view the therapist in the role of a kind of guru. And some may feel frustrated and unfulfilled with a therapist that doesn't take a more active role in guiding them, whether they are aware of this or not. That makes complete sense. If this sounds like something you'd struggle with, it might not be the best option for you. But on the other side of it, it might also be beneficial to have a less hierarchical space 
to really explore these feelings, especially in a society where there tends to be a lot of hierarchy imposed. On top of that, a 2018 paper by Kim, specific to a more East Asian context, points out that while a client's goals in therapy may differ based on the whole individualist collectivist orientation, what's universal in humanistic theory is what can be focused on, uh, specifically the tendency of all of us to continue improving, or if you'd like to know the jargon, our actualizing tendency. This improving could mean completely different things for some of us, but with this motivation for change, person-centered therapy can be extremely effective. So if, with your freshly acquired knowledge of some of the most common approaches, you do identify a therapist you think you'd like to work with, the next step would be to begin your sessions. Don't worry at all if you feel nervous and anxious initially. Your psychologist will take the lead, and each session will be a step towards your goals. In the beginning, you can expect warming up, icebreakers, pretty much a game of 20 questions depending on your therapist's approach, alongside understanding your initial reasons for coming to them. Eventually, they'll want to know more about you and your family's psychological history, exploring what you're struggling with. You'll then define goals to collectively work towards. Alternatively, depending on your case, if you're physically suffering, the psychologist might direct you to rule out certain medical conditions such as PCOS, thyroid problems, or your therapist may also refer you to a psychiatrist to discuss and prescribe medications that could help make your symptoms more manageable, alongside talk therapy, of course. Now, there are a number of other approaches in talk therapy as well that we won't get into in as much detail or we'd be stuck here all day. Some of these include gestalt therapy, existential therapy, reality therapy, family systems therapy, and now more recent approaches such as feminist therapy and other such postmodern approaches. What you might also see a lot more commonly these days is holistic eclectic therapy or more open integration of multiple approaches. Therapists don't need to confine themselves to just one approach, right? Since the needs of clients themselves can vary a lot and different clients respond to different things. In fact, a single session could include a mix of all these things. It could begin with some person-centered active listening to get the client more in touch with what they're feeling. Uh, maybe a short role play exercise, think psychodynamic, to help uncover what the client would really like to express to someone they're in conflict with. And then maybe a quick CBT style worksheet to help the client look at the thought patterns they're following in this situation. This is just a random example, by the way, using the three common approaches we discussed. Of course, integration can look like many different things. These techniques can also be used across approaches, but applied differently, you may have noticed that we mentioned role play under CBT earlier. As psychotherapy progresses, it can get overwhelming. It might leave you with difficult emotions such as anger and sadness, but that doesn't mean it isn't working. In fact, just the opposite, it means that you are working through these difficulties to make a change. But there are situations where your equation with your psychologist just isn't getting to where you want it to be. Maybe you're not satisfied with their diagnosis, methods or something else. Bhavya, what do you think might be the best way to approach that? In this case, you can directly bring it up with your therapist and work to find an approach that suits both of you. Or you could consider consulting someone else, keeping the original therapist in the loop though. If you constantly feel like this alliance isn't benefiting you, it's probably just not a good match. So don't let this get to you. As the client-practitioner relationship is crucial, you can always look for a better fit. Letting your psychologist know the reasons. It's your journey after all. Yep, and at this stage, you might be wondering how this journey comes to an end. How does termination or knowing when to stop therapy work? 
Well, this is pretty subjective and completely depends on you and your therapist mutually deciding how you've achieved your goals and how you'd like to venture out of the therapeutic space. It's also something that you can be open to returning to as life progresses. It can help at a number of different pit stops along your journey. More closely looking at these stages and processes in therapy, it's unfortunate to note that most of them and the different approaches have been started majorly in the Western context, as mentioned before. It's really difficult to know what the data tell us on the effectiveness of various approaches with populations in India when <laughs> there's really not a lot of data. A majority of journal articles on psychotherapy in India, specifically outpatient psychotherapy like the one we're discussing here, fall in the category of reviews and articles pointing out gaps and scope for growth in the field. There's relatively very little actual published data. That's right, and it really wouldn't be correct to assume that the majorly US-based data is directly transferable to India. We are pretty uniquely placed as a society in some senses. Um, stuck somewhere in the overlap of the transition to what's considered a more modern society or more globalized and westernized, but still simultaneously very close to traditional values and culture that's more unique to India. And let's not even get started on the diversity within the country itself. Some research has looked at the privilege gap in access to therapy between the East and the West, but very little looks at this gap within India itself. Um, last year, there was a published letter to the editor of the Indian Journal of Psychiatry in which psychologists Lodha and D'Souza identified that while symptoms, medical treatments and neuroimaging have been focused on in psychological research in India, there's a great dearth of psychotherapy studies, especially those with case studies or those focusing on outcomes. That's a shame because there's definitely been theorizing on what might be more effective in the Indian context. For example, back in the 2000, a writer named Uman proposed family therapy as a good alternative and I thought it was put really well. So here's a direct quote. Family therapy in modern India offers ways to strike a balance between the tyranny of the collective and the alienation of individualism. Um, beautiful. <laughs> and further back in the 1970s, a psychiatrist, Dr. Jaswan Singh Neki, who was actually the one who described the tendency to view the therapist as a guru, the thing that Sanaya mentioned earlier. Uh, he was the one who saw this as arising from the promotion of social dependency in Indian society. The ways in which this affects the actual therapy sessions and outcomes, however, hasn't been studied at all, so there's no concrete data. The significant roles of family, community, even faith and religion just can't be ignored when trying to apply data from the West. This is especially troubling since the demand for therapy and counselling is also increasing for sure. But there's still so many obstacles in the way. We are of course still miles away from overcoming the stigma against seeking help for mental difficulties. The stereotypes are numerous, people often don't believe in the efficacy of talk therapy, and you may be met with statements like, oh, why can't you just talk to your family members, or how will speaking to someone cure you, and any number of other such misconceptions. Families in a culture like India's also play quite a big role. So they also often have very different ideas of privacy and confidentiality than you might find in other places. So this could complicate matters too. This is of course not what the case should be with confidentiality within the therapy session. If there is a breach in confidentiality here, the psychologists can lose their license. So they take it extremely seriously, except for a few legally binding reasons, such as harm to others or self, in which case it's their duty. 
Besides this aspect though, this isn't just about keeping your information confidential, but also about any form of acknowledgement. So if you bump into your therapist, it's okay to establish that you will ignore them. They'll completely understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Aside from this, an extremely important limitation in India stems from the idea that the poor are somehow happier than the rich, which is just one among many myths. That's an absolutely flawed statement, because issues treated by psychotherapy directly relate to one's socioeconomic status. In fact, there is some research by Trani and Bakshi et al. in India that shows how public stigma and multidimensional poverty stemming from casteism, exclusion from employment, lower income, all these contribute to factors that make it extremely difficult for people with severe mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, to cope and receive care. And this is beyond just the obvious barrier in accessing therapy, which is the ability to afford it. Apart from this non-feasibility owing to people's socio-economic backgrounds, the doctor-patient ratio itself remains really large. There are 0.75 psychiatrists per 100,000 people, which is far from the recommended ratio of at least three psychiatrists per 100,000 people. Uh, the shortage of mental health professionals and income is only the tip of the iceberg. There are also issues that are much more nuanced. As mentioned, casteism remains present in India in this sphere as well. Dr. Sushrut Jadav talks about the landscape of caste and how it needs closer exploration to understand the psychological effects. For example, manual scavengers, people who dive into sewage manholes and handle fecal matter, who drink to cope and struggle with alcohol. It'll never be okay to subject them to a westernized idea of a CBT strategy or any form of psychotherapy for that matter without understanding and addressing the damage that they have been subjected to due to casteism. Yes, the effects of caste-based discrimination on mental health can manifest in extremely detrimental ways. By no means are the needs of these communities homogenous. Issues such as generational trauma, internalization of lived experiences, caste-based violence and sexual assault do require specialized care. They also aren't at all separate from the oppressive systems that perpetuate them, which are vital to hold accountable. While our focus here is psychological research specifically, we urge you all to really listen to the voices of those from Dalit, Bahujan and Adivasi communities to understand what is needed. Just a couple who have spoken about this are Divya Malhari and Manisha Mashal. And while caste has its own intricacies, the oppressed communities affected also extend to gender, sexuality, those affected by communal violence. While there are practitioners who are trained as trauma-aware or gender-affirming therapists, they still cater to a certain layer of society. And we aren't separate from any of this. Plus, language is another issue. Training in counselling and psychotherapy is primarily done in English, and that automatically eliminates a large majority of the Indian population since a lot of concepts and techniques may not be directly translatable and you run the risk of losing out efficacy and nuance in therapy without researching the effects of this properly. Unfortunately, the fact that there is very little research in the domain of privilege in psychotherapy, that itself points towards the need to incorporate local contexts and the need for psychological training that is attuned to the diverse Indian demographics needs. An option that Bhargav and Kumar discussed in 2017 is the incorporation of indigenous approaches, including the role of Indian scriptures and myth, spirituality, and techniques of Ayurveda with established psychotherapeutic treatments. An example that shows how effectively adapted westernized treatments can be is how widely accepted yoga and meditation are as techniques used alongside types of talk therapy. 
Besides the research so greatly needed on applicability and outcomes of established methods with different populations, developing newer techniques and continuing to grow the field is just as important. While taking greater steps to improve accessibility to and quality of psychotherapy in India, there needs to be a space in therapy for anyone who needs it. And the current system that caters to just the elite is really not it. We hope this podcast adds to how you think about therapy in the current context. Especially since, as we mentioned, there's so much here that we weren't able to cover. We would love to hear your thoughts and engage with you on this topic on our Instagram page. If you found this podcast valuable in any way, do follow us to make sure you don't miss out on our future content. See you then.